if you're an elementary age kid or below, you can head out this door to the side and uh, head to your classroom. Well, my name is Carson Rock. I get to serve as an elder here at the Vine Community Church, and it's my pleasure this morning to introduce our guest speaker, David Ta. So you may know his wife, Reagan, who was a part of our community for a long time prior to going serving in the mission field in Thailand, and that's where she actually met David, and they were married in 2018 and uh, have two kids, Ezra and Judah, and uh, the grandparents of those kids, Greg and Angela Taylor, have been members of our church for a long time, and you can definitely consult them if you'd like to see some pictures of Judah and Ezra, and they'd be more than happy to share those with you. Um, but David's currently in seminary, and they're also uh, involved in a ministry called Missionary-ish, where they're helping uh, build, equip, and send people out into the mission field. And so David and Reagan are wonderful folks. I'd encourage you after the service, if you haven't had a chance to get to connect with them, just to spend a little time talking uh, with David and Reagan this morning. They live in Orange County, California, and serve at a part of a local church there. And so... Let's give a warm welcome for David Ta as he comes and shares the word. Thanks, Carson. I'm going to borrow this real quick. Man, it's so nervous after a whole year of being stuck inside and you're asked to come outside and talk to a bunch of people. You know, I don't know if you guys know, in California, we're a bit more closed and conservative and in terms of our health. You know, and we stay inside, mask up and everything, and so to come out here, you're just like, <sighs> you know. But anyways, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. It's a pleasure to celebrate the Lord's Day with you all, and thank you, worship team, for just leading us to know that God is good. Um, so if you guys have your Bibles today, I just want to take us to dive into Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. I'll give you a minute right there. This is God's word. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will receive a reward, each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, and gosh, Lord, we are full of distractions and worries and concerns about the future, about ourselves, and Lord, we just ask that you would really be present in our hearts and our lives today, that whatever distractions, worries, and concerns, may you cast those things aside and help us, help us to hear um, your word today, help us to see what it means to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. So some of you guys um, already know me, Reagan and I have been missionaries over the sea, uh, overseas in Thailand for a number of years before we came back. Um, but some of you guys don't know this about me, is that my first mission trip happened a few years ago, uh, well, actually a long time ago, over 10 years ago, in college, uh, in my sophomore year. And it was the first time that I was ever going over outside of a country, ever applied for a passport, ever left California, and then actually found myself in uh, Central America, in Nicaragua. And I would argue that was probably the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life, until now, if you have twins, that's probably a little harder. 
So, you know, as a young Christian, however, as someone in college and just starting out, uh, it was the first time that I had to really wrestle, what does it mean to walk with Christ? What does it mean to put things that I valued in my life, walk away from it? And it cost me a lot. It was a very painful moment uh, in which I had to make a decision. Uh, even though I gained Christ, I lost my relationship with my parents. And the summer of my sophomore year, it was really difficult because, you know, I didn't have a lot of Christian friends and family, and I was just a brand new Christian, just probably a year in. Um, my parents were pretty disappointed. My dad told me that if I was his son, I wouldn't do something like this to him. I was their eldest son, and uh, my parents had really had a simple dream for me. They, they wanted me to work hard. They wanted me to have a comfortable life. They wanted me to get married and stay close. And I'm sure some of you guys relate to that similar aspiration for your family. But as someone who's grown up um, from an Eastern background, you know, family, and much of, the, much of here too, family is everything, right? But also being born in the U.S., you know, I've also experienced a highly, you know, individualized desire to, to fulfill your own personal legacy, right? To, to be individualistic. So I've always had a hard time wrestling this. How do you actually reconcile this, right? Do I live for my family or do I live, like, for myself? Do I just do me, right? But the passage today that we're looking at, what we see is that God actually does, is, is calling us to do neither, right? Today's passage is challenging because it, it actually goes against the grain for for all of us, right, whether we're raised up in the church or we're outside of the church, like, there's something a little bit about in this passage today to offend everybody. So, so it requires us to think deeply, but not only that, to live wholeheartedly. And I know all of us here have struggled because of the pandemic. I know for sure living wholeheartedly while being virtually living is, like, such a weird dichotomy, right? And some of us here, all of us here, uh, would like to give a part of ourselves. Some of us give 10%, or if, if we give anything at all. But God is actually asking us to give 100%. But that seems like a bit much, right? For all of us, myself included. But Matthew 16 today shows us just that. Jesus doesn't shy away from this. He actually calls the disciples specifically to, to a higher standard, and he doesn't hold back. And as we're returning back to normal in, like, this post-COVID vaccination era, like, it, it, it's a challenge. Like, what does living for Christ even look like? And if you guys are following along and taking notes, I want to focus on three things. So first point is, what does it take to be a disciple of Christ? So really simple. Why is denying ourselves so difficult, and why is it worth it? So what does it take to be a discipleship, uh, disciple of Christ? Why is denying ourselves so hard, and why is it worth it? So the first one, what does it take to be a disciple of Christ? And so if you guys turn and look at verse 24, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Pretty straightforward, right? It says right off the bat we see that this is a person that denies themselves. Right? But how far does this denial go? Let's keep reading. Verse 25 says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. I think one commentator says this, and I think it's really helpful. He says this, Taking up a cross 
means picking up the horizontal bar of a cross, carrying it through the streets from the place of judgment to the place of execution, and enduring the insults of people along the way. To do thus in following Jesus signifies open allegiance to Jesus, the crucified one. Such allegiance will expose one to hostility of the world and entail the risk of losing one's life as he lost his. That's pretty convicting. I think some of us, when we think about church, it's a place where we get all of our needs, move on with our lives. We get salvation. We get a community. We get our own personal life coach named Trev and Brandon. We get free coffee and donuts. We get a network for business. We get to hear positive, uplifting messages that remind us of how much God loves us in the hopes that he can give us what we want, which is a safe, successful, comfortable life. But is that really what the church is about? And it doesn't seem like that, right? Like as we look into this passage, he's calling Christians to not be comfortable, but to come to the end of themselves and to die. And if you're a Christian today, and I know not all of us are Christians, but if you're a Christian, the expectation is you, for you to live in such a way that you're willing to give up your life. This means that your plans will have to die. Your plans for an early retirement, your plans for a late retirement, your plans for a stable career in medicine, your plans not to take as many medicines, your plans to have many babies, your plans to have no babies, your plans for getting to the best college or university that you can possibly be in, or your plans to stay with your parents forever. When we say yes to Jesus, it doesn't mean that we get to keep our plans whole. We only get one plan. It's either his or ours. And for Christians, it's his alone. And church is really about helping each other, pointing each other back to the reality of what it looks like to follow Jesus to his death. And now, now you might be wondering for a second, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's Sunday morning. We're having a good day. Why, is, or why are you bringing this up? This is too, too intense, right? I don't want to die like this. I don't I want to live my life like this. Like, I just got up. My life is good. My morning has been good. Why are you ruining it for me right now? But I don't know about you, but this has been... It's always hard writing a sermon because I'm preaching this to you, but I'm like, I don't do this. I don't do this a lot of times. I mean, you can talk to Reagan later. But it's hard, right? It's hard to see the reality that we don't like to deny ourselves, right? But why is it? Why is it so hard for us to deny ourselves? And I think one of the most disappointing things about this time is seeing how Christian brothers and sisters do the opposite of this. And from looking to mainstream media to Christian mainstream media, uh, we see that there's a single thread that's been consistently the same. And it's that people don't want to deny themselves. In fact, it's anti-American, right, to deny our rights, whether it's gun rights or gender rights, to deny our own understanding of what it means to uphold our personal values. But what if our values is this? What if our value means that we are to love those who hate us? to love those who will do everything in their power to remove any power that we have in us, to say and have a voice? What if it means actually to believe that we are to love our enemy and to pray for those that persecute us? 
You know, I was talking to a Christian brother and sister on our way ride over uh, from the plane ride here to Oklahoma, and thankfully the twins were asleep, we were hanging out, so we actually had a decent conversation going on. And we talked about, you know, just subjects of life and things, but we landed on this topic of what's happening in California. And I don't know if you guys know this about our education system, but in the Tustin School District, where Reagan and I live, um, school teachers now are allowed to pass out diagrams of, uh, of a unicorn, and it's a gender unicorn, and it basically is a picture that gives children five unique categories in which they can express themselves. Gender identity, gender expression, sex assigned at birth, physically attracted to, emotionally attracted to, and children are basically allowed, based on this cartoon, to pick whatever gender or whatever alignment that they think they feel like, right? I think this better fleshes out a little bit, bit better. In the Los Angeles Times, it writes this for its explanation. The idea is that kids who spend the first few years of their lives without the stereotype loaded labels of boy and girl will feel free to be their most authentic selves. Whether they're boys who like to play house or girls who like to mess around with chemistry sets, to present a parent who supports this perspective, gender-creative parenting does not mean gender-neutral. They emphasize, nor does it mean assigning non-binary identity to Azul, this is her child, is not about encouraging Azul to be uh, a transgender, gay, or contrarian. It's about giving Azul the foundation to think critically about the dynamics of how gender plays out in society and the freedom to figure out who they are without being told how they should be based on their biological sex. And so as a society, we've done a pretty good job with doing away with our moral law. Next on our horizon is doing away with our physical laws. And biology, unfortunately, is next on the list, right? I know this may be sh sounding shocking to you, or you might be celebrating, I don't know. But like, this is what California is moving towards, and we're embracing it full speed ahead. And this is a bit shocking, right, for those of us who hold uh, Christian values. But in reality, though, is it really that much different than us? This group may have deformities in terms of their understanding of what gender is, but how many of us have deformities in our understanding of marriage? How many of us have deformities in the way that we treat our spouses, our children, the people that have hurt us severely? How many times would we rather choose the deformed route than choose the, the, the route of the cross and to die to ourselves? I know I don't perfectly. I struggle with that. And at the end of the day, the idea is I do what I want. You don't tell me what to do. I mean, those of us on the right would say, you don't tell me what to do with my, my land, my family, my guns. And those on the left would say, you don't tell me what to do with my body, my sexuality, my identity, or my education. But both would say, how dare you interrupt my journey to a comfortable, safe, successful American life? It's just two sides of the same coin. But the reality is, friends, denying oneself is not natural. Denying ourselves is not natural. And the saddest thing, however, is not about how messed up the world is, it's about how messed up the Christians are. I mean, I don't know for you guys, but during this pandemic, hearing about how many pastors have fallen just grieves me, right? 
I mean, when I heard that Ravi Zacharias had all these sexual allegations, I was just floored. It's just, it's just so sad, right? Mark Driscoll's church continues to be plagued with abuse allegations, and another pastor in my denomination who led a church in L.A. that Reagan and I really appreciate was defraught due to the fact that he was continuing propagating a culture of fear and abuse amongst his staff. And another pastor acquaintance that works in Boston next to Harvard and MIT that I know, he basically was found mismanaging funds and basically laundering a lot of money for himself and basically paying his staff an unlivable wage. And all this to say, the call to die, to die to oneself is not just hard for the regular churchgoer. It's hard for small group leaders, deacons, deaconesses, elders, and even missionaries and pastors. And that's because all of us are broken. All of us have a, sinal, a sinner's internal orientation within us. And so being selfish and self-centered is actually natural. And now I have two infant boys, as you guys know. They were making sounds earlier, right? You know, and right now I have a front row seat, not just here, but at home to human depravity. <laughs> right? Like, one of the purest ways to observe unbridled, selfish human behavior is to watch children. Right? And the only reason why you're still alive is because they're not stronger than you. Right? You know, I have one right now. His name is Judah. He's the first one that came out, so he's the older one. He loves, loves to eat, right? He loves to eat so much that Reagan and I can't feed him fast enough. And in fact, after he finishes his food, he's still mad because we are still eating our food and he wants that too, right? Like, how come you're not giving me that, Dad? How come? How come? And the other one, he has preferences. Oh, so many preferences, right? Like, he wants to hold, be held all the time in a perfect position. And if, it's, if it moves anywhere from vertical portrait or to horizontal, it's over, <laughs> right? Why are you holding me wrong like this, right? Do it again, Dad. Do it again. Fix it. Otherwise, I'll just yell at you until your ears go out. <laughs> but you know what? I love my sons, and I'm sure you guys love your children. And, but I found, you know, I found after being a parent for just a few months, you know, which is not much, that I am not much different than they are. You know, Reagan and I, we get hangry <laughs> when we don't eat. You know, and we get agitated when there's last-minute stuff that comes out and we're right about to leave out the door and something comes up, right? Or I just feel like my life is about to end when, when we jump into topics of major life decisions at, like, 11 p.m. at night. You know, like, I grow impatient. I'm fearful. I'm irritated. I'm unkind to her and to the babies sometimes. And in these moments, no one taught me to do that. No one told me, like, my parents weren't like, David, when you get into these hard situations, be a jerk, right? No one teaches you to do that. You just do that, right? And so this is, this is just the reality for all of us is that we have knee-jerk reactions in our hearts. And I think the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says this better than anybody. He says, I do not understand what I do. <laughs> for what I do, I do not want to do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And as it is, it is no longer I myself who do, it, who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. I, this I keep on doing. And so the Bible is not lost 
on the reality of our hearts. We are bent towards us, right? We're, we come out of the package that way, right? With, the, with no instructions, but, but generally we just bend towards our own needs and desires. Most of us pretend, and myself included, that sometimes we are fine. We're trying our best to minimize it. But deep down, we struggle with it. And most of us think that we're pretty good Christians overall because, you know, we try our best, we do our best, we live our best, we still go to church and things like that. But according to who? There was a song that I recently listened to um, by Humble, um, from Humblebeast, but uh, it's by Beautiful Eulogy, that it really, it really gripped my soul. It says this, if in, one if in one unfortunate moment you took everything that I own, everything that you've given from heaven above and everything that I've ever known, if you stripped away my ministry, my influence, my reputation, my health, my happiness, my friends, my pride, and my expectation, if you, cause to, uh, if you cause for me to suffer or to suffer for the cause of the cross, if the cost of my allegiance is prison and all my freedoms are lost, if you take the breath from my lungs and make an end of my life, if you take the most precious part of me and take my kids and my wife, if you crush me, if you, it would break me, it would suffocate and cause heartache, it would taste the bitter darkness of providence, but you will still preserve my faith. What's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. How about you? Are there things in your heart right now that you're not willing to give up? I know there are things that I'm still working through letting go. But I know that it's worth it. But how is it worth it? Let's take a look back to the passage again. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So when I was studying this passage, I was thinking again, like, man, I haven't read this passage in so long. How can anyone on earth lose something and count it as gain? Like, it doesn't make sense. Even though I've been walking with the Lord for a while, like, it was a good refresher that, you know, still I have a hard time internalizing this. It doesn't make sense. But it only makes sense if we are reminded of the fact that everyone in this life starts the same way and ends the same way. You and I will leave everything that we've gained in this life behind. It's only a matter of time, right? This means that your, all the accolades that you've grown to earn in this life will be gone. Your legacy will be gone. Your name will be gone. I mean, how many of you guys know who started Coca-Cola? It's the number one brand in the world. We love the drink but we don't know who actually made it. Or actually, maybe you guys do, right? <laughs> but, but I don't. But anyways, like, let's take a more modern example. As if you guys are following the news or checking your crypto bank or whatever things that you're investing in, you know that Bill and Melinda Gates are getting a divorce, right? And they are the world's richest couple, the biggest philanthropists that the world has ever seen, and yet their lives are slowly decaying. And even Bill, even though he has the whole world in the palm of his hands, and he's really intelligent. His marriage is failing. His reputation is failing. And you know, his wealth and his net worth will be zero when he dies. And we know this to be true because this is true for us as well. Ecclesiastes says it best, as a man from his mother's womb, so he will, de will depart again. Naked as he arrived, he takes nothing for his labor, carries his hands. This too is grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, so he will depart. What does he gain as he toils for the wind? 
And moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, which much sorrow, sickness, and anger. That's pretty depressing. But it doesn't have to be this way. And for the, the, the greatest reason why I think denying myself is worth it is because even though all of us will zero out, if we trust in God, we still have him at the end of the day. This physical reality isn't all that there is to this life. And you know that. Some of the best things in this world are invisible. The wind on a hot day, electricity to power your home, the mist of the water that, that turns and, and cools our environments, the love that you receive from one another, right? So there are many, many things that are not physical in this life that are just, that will test the truth of time. One commentator says this, and I think he wraps it up for us really well. He says this, in the end, God will reward us for what we've, we've done, and the eternal life matters more than our temporary lives in this age. I once shared Christ with an associate who cared deeply about his friends, prompting him to consider that the eternal life is a gift of far greater significance than any other that he could offer them. But he could not give what he did not have himself. God's spirit prompted him to forsake statuses and worldly plans, and he became a committed Christian who has touched countless lives since that day. And John dared to believe that God's eternal riches outweigh any cost in the present, so he became a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And this is the convicting part. Yet how few disciples we have, except for going to church and paying tithes. Many Christians today do with their time and money much of the same way as morally upright non-Christians do. You know, I know that Reagan and I will die someday and the kids will die someday, you know, and there will be nothing of us in a couple hundred years, right? Naked I come, naked I go. And some of you here don't have much time left, Right? And the reality is, you know, whether or not you want to avoid denying yourselves, you can't help but understand that you can't help but be denied in this life. There's going to be things that you were hoping that you're not going to get. There were dreams that you want to attain that you're not going to be able to achieve. There are things that you want in this life that even if you were to achieve it, when the clock hits zero and you're you're going to meet the Lord, that's it. That's it. Right? But the thing is, I don't, want to, I don't want to scare you guys today. I don't want to tell you guys all the reasons why you should deny yourself, otherwise God's going to punish you. And I'm not going to try to give you like this fantastic, amazing reason that you're going to win the lottery or whatever, <laughs> or, you know, and get this massive reward for God. Because that's not going to work. It might work in this world. I don't know if you guys have been following the news, but I found it really funny recently <laughs> that uh, the Ohio uh, government board has basically recently, in order to get people to get more vaccinations going, they were like, we're going to do the Vaximillion project, and if you get vaccinated, you get entered into this lottery, and you might win a million dollars. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> like over 28% increase in the population of Ohioans started getting the vaccination but you know what's interesting, though? Why are they doing it? Is it because, like, oh, I love my neighbor. I need to get vaccinated. No, it's the scholarship that you might get. No, it's the million dollars that you might get, right? And either way, you know, I can't scare you into following God, and neither can I reward you into following God, because here's the thing. 
God's not interested in that. Because at the end of the day, either you fear punishment or you have FOMO. Right? You fear missing out on a possible opportunity. And God's not interested in that because in following God, he's not interested in you being motivated by any type of fear, but in love. And we know he tells us this, that perfect love casts out all fear, right? And so we are deny ourselves, but what is the engine? What is the engine that will cause us to want to see this as a worthwhile thing? And it's not until we see that there's a bloody savior on a tree that has taken every cruddy thing that we've done in our lives, that whether or not we even know that it's cruddy, he died for it, right? And he tells us this, for just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So friends, if you feel crummy or you feel that you don't have too much hope or you have too much hope and you're not trusting in God, the truth and the reality is, for, is that God loves you and he wants you to turn to him and to surrender to him. But what happens, friends? What happens when we do this? And I don't think there's any better place to look but in scripture itself. And it's in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And it says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to breaking bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad hearts and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friends, this is amazing news, is that we can come as a mess, we can come as a wreck, but as God works in us, there's something amazing that happens. We get conformed and be shaped more like Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much um, that we can come here on this Sunday to not only be reminded of the reality of your love, but the reality of who we are. Unless we know how far we've walked away from you, we don't know how good your love is to us. So Lord, help us. Help us to, to see how big and how grandeur your love for us really is and what an amazing thing that you've done for us on the cross. Move us, convict us, show us to be more like you. Help us to fall more in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the song we're going to close with is filled with scripture about...